David, what are your thoughts about technology? My thoughts about technology. Well, Ryan, that is that is quite a big question. Uh, I, I've been interested in technology for uh, a long time from the philosophical perspective, and uh, you know, just as you asked the question, I thought of Heidegger's uh, little book on the problem of technology, which I had read back in college. I don't think I understood the Heidegger any more than I understand how. Uh, these technologies we're working on today uh, uh, function, but it is, it's a fascinating topic. And I think it's a topic that's uh, become just more pressing and critical in the last year with the pandemic and so much of our work life and social life depending on technology and not just the direct human interaction that uh, so many of us were used to beforehand. So you said it was a big question. Let me try to shorten it. David, how do you feel about tech? Oh, well, now the question also becomes, how do I feel about jargon? <laughs> um, which, which could take us in a whole different direction. But now, well, I like to use the word tech to make it sound like I know more about technology than I actually do. Uh, I think we're all we're all struggling with the complexities of it, even putting aside the philosophical questions about technology and putting aside the scientific and uh, technical questions about how how, how the, the technologies we're depending on now actually work, which are almost inscrutable questions for so many of us. Uh, the problem of tech, the problem of technology is right in our faces every day because we're depending on computer screens, Zoom meetings, social media, and the whole range of tech just to have basic uh, interactions and social relations at this point. Well, this is going to be the perfect episode for us to listen to then because uh, Karen had a wonderful conversation with my good friend, Lena Duarte. Lena is a senior consultant at Halloran Consulting, and they spoke about the intersection of technology and making workplaces that are fit for humans. Well, that's great. I, 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 it's an unavoidable question at this point. Uh, and it has become um, really, I, I think in many ways, you might agree, it's, it's become like the central question about how workplaces can be both human and also productive and profitable going forward, even as we move past the pandemic, the technologies are not going away. And we need to be thinking very rigorously, very carefully about how to um, reinvent human relationships by leveraging the technology and not letting it be an obstacle. Absolutely. So let's jump right in and take a listen to Lena and Karen. I'm looking forward to it. Well, today we are so happy to welcome Lena Duarte to the Think, Talk, Create podcast. This is a place where we focus on that idea of creating workplaces for humans, workplaces that are fit for humans. Lena is a senior consultant at the Halloran Consulting Group based in Boston, where she focuses on organizational readiness, change management, and technology. She works largely with companies in the life science industry, and she helps those companies improve their performance through people, process, and technology 
to bring about organizational change. Hello, Lena. Welcome to Think Talk Create. Hi, Karen. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. All right, let's start with just that description of the work that you do organizational change and improved performance through people, process, and technology. Starts with the people, doesn't it? It always starts with the people. And I think a lot of the times, the change itself is so psychological and it depends so much on people's behavior that it's very easy to implement a project or to complete an initiative, but the people component plays such a large role on whether or not that initiative is going to be successful. So that's where you start right there. And, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about change, how change really is just difficult for most individuals, you know, relatively stereotypically speaking on an individual level, we don't like change and it can be pretty emotional. Why is change so emotional? I think there's a large, there are various reasons why change is emotional. It's emotional because a lot of the times the uncertainty that comes with change can be very difficult to understand. You're not really sure if that change is gonna impact the way that you work your day to day. A lot of the technology implementations, some of that is just fear that the technology itself might actually take over your job and you might become obsolete. There's also just fear about the change impacting you negatively. And so people will spend a lot of time thinking about, well, this change might actually make more work for me. It's gonna make my day harder. And so that also creates that negative connotation or that negative behavior or feeling that people might have with change. You know, and it brings to mind another aspect of this as well, which is this idea of change fatigue. I'm working with a company right now and a couple of my clients there are saying, gosh, you know, we reorg or have some sort of change initiative every six to nine months and they're exhausted. Um, they, they don't ever seem to really be out of change mode. And it, it feels very frustrating to, to the folks that I'm working with there. Is there such a thing as change fatigue and you have too much change? I definitely think so. Because I think that in order to have change, you need to reach a certain steady state first so that you can be able to, to show or to justify why you even need the change to begin with. If you're constantly stuck in change or cycles of change, then really it just becomes your day-to-day -day or your, the normal um, kind of operations that you're working with. And so you, I could see or definitely understand why people would get fatigued from it because then at that point, that is your, your new normal. It's just this, this anxiety over what is the change that's gonna happen now. And then the other part of it is that change takes a long time, especially when it comes to business. Six months is almost never enough for you to actually be even or for you to actually be able to show that that change had a lasting impact on the way that your company worked. So if you're not able, if you're not able to show people that the change was worth it, that the change of behavior was worth it, then people don't really accept the next level of change that's coming towards them. You just kind of opt out or emotionally you check out because there is no point of you providing input anymore if it's just gonna keep being the same exact thing. In your work, what are the most common mistakes you see companies making when they start a change initiative? Ooh, I think the biggest one is the lack of time. I think a lot of times it's initiatives, people want their initiatives to move fast. You want to be as speedy as possible. You want to keep budget costs down as much as possible. But the problem is, is that, again, change takes a long time. And one of the big things that people forget about is bringing awareness to that change 
And you need to be bringing that awareness to the change months before you even start doing any real work oh. on actually designing what that change is going to look like. And what I see a lot of my clients do is that they will hire us to start an initiative. The initiative may be lasting, let's say, eight to 10 weeks. And we have to build three to four months of awareness and desire of, for that change, which usually takes about two to four months into one to two weeks. And it's almost never enough. It's really difficult to be able to identify who all the stakeholders are gonna be. How are people going to be impacted? If you're just trying to really cram two months of work into one to two weeks, you're de there's definitely gonna be things that fall through the cracks. So that to me is one of the biggest um, mistakes that I see companies do is to wrap the change management component into the actual implementation of their change. Wow. You, want to, you have to give the change a lot more time because again, this is, you're asking people to change their behavior, you're asking people to change the way that they work. And so you wanna be able to right up front, be giving people value propositions, be giving them the reasons why they should be excited for this change. But I think you probably know as well as I do, it, you have to tell someone the same thing three to four times for it to actually sink in. And so that's why I always recommend, you need, you need to start marketing your message, you need to start marketing the change at least two to three months before you even start to think about working on the actual change. So let's be real about the, the calendar commitment here. So two to three months before the change, but how much time before that communication do we need to start planning for it and creating the messages for that? How much time it's does that take? Also true, yes, right. it takes a while. Also, your marketing materials aren't gonna make themselves. That's right. And, the, and one of the things that I think, or my favorite part of these change management projects is actually creating the, that value proposition statement that comes with it. Doing the gap assessment, reaching out to the actual people who, I call them boots on the ground, the people who are actually doing the work and talking to them about, you know, what are the things that you see that could be working better? What are some of the gaps? What are some of your pain points? And it's always so fascinating because you would think that for, we would see the same pain points for most of our clients, but a lot of times there are pain points that come up every single time, but then each individual client will have such different pain points. It's always so fascinating to see. It might be two organizations who are the same size, same number of employees, but everyone will have different, very specific pain points to their organization. Love it. So again, you have to allow time for all the marketing materials and the message development then two to three months before the actual change initiative and then the change initiative. So should we give ourselves at least another couple of months to prepare all that? I'd say a good four months probably. Wow, okay. And one thing to keep in mind is that we're not, I'm not saying that you need a full-time person for that. You can start your change initiative or your change marketing communication component with a much smaller team that you would for your actual implementation for the change initiative but you still need to keep in mind that, that you should be starting it sooner rather than later because you don't really want anyone who's going to be impacted by that change to feel like they, they didn't have any idea that this change was happening to them. Absolutely, good, good, good point here. All right, so what are the best approaches you've seen to managing the conflict or the resistance once the change has been initiated? So it's out there, we're in the process of it and it's not taking, what do we do? I think for starters is you really have to identify who are the people who are resisting the change the most. 
And a lot of times you might think, well, they're just, they're, they're just resisting it because they want to resist it. But I've actually found that reaching out to people who are resisting the change is where I figure out or I find out what actual problems there might be with my own program strategy or, or the methodology that I've you know, created for that project because they know the gaps better than I do. And so a lot of the times it's finding that change resistor, listening to them, giving them a wide enough, you know, um, sorry, I'm forgetting my English, giving them like a, a big enough room or, or space, there we go, yeah. giving them the emotional space that they feel comfortable enough talking to you about why they're so against this change because you can actually end up using their concern as a way to market to other people to be like, we, like we're listening to you. Because I think a big part of change is having people feel like they're being heard. Yeah. And it doesn't always mean that, oh, we heard you and therefore I'm changing the entire way that we're doing this project. That, that, you know, that doesn't have to be like that. But even if it's, hey, I heard you, I heard that you have this concern. And I'm gonna try my hardest to make it as painless for you. Or look, I can't promise you that this isn't going to be painless, but what I can promise you is that we're gonna work through this together. So being able to listen and then really catering that message to them and being as collaborative as possible, I find is the best way to deal with some of that resistance that you, that you see for change. I love that, you know, really around the communication, the listening is such an important piece of it. And be, before I got into executive coaching, my prior life, I was in corporate communications. So did a lot of change management communications plans. Can you over communicate during times like this? Is it too much of a good thing sometimes? I don't think so. I personally am an over communicator. I would prefer that I give people too much information and then they have the option to filter out the stuff that they don't really care about versus what they actually want to focus on. One of my main goals when I'm, on, when I'm doing any kind of change management project is I don't want anyone midway through the project to show up and say, I had absolutely no clue that this was happening or this is going to impact me substantially and no one at any point has asked me for my input or for my feelings around this because that means I've failed my job as a consultant I've failed, you know, I've failed the project because I didn't take an important stakeholder into consideration. So I would rather over communicate. And a lot of the times, you know, I'll send out email communications or newsletters to people. And at the bottom, I always try to say like, reach out to me if you have any questions or concerns. Or I like to finish my meetings with, if you guys at any point, like if you wake up in the middle of the night and you have a burning question, email me, like call me. It's important. I like to make sure that people know that I'm available to hear them. And then I also think that I would rather, or actually another thing is really getting clear communication channels defined up front. You're right because, about this, yes. Yeah, like if you, if you receive 20 emails a day from your, you know, your organization that are just updates, project updates, uh, technology is down, blah, blah, blah. And I send out a newsletter through email, that email is just gonna become part of the noise you of the bet. chatter. Yeah. So what's a, what are some better ways that we can communicate with people? Does, does my client have a SharePoint? Do they use Slack? So getting really innovative around the different communication channels helps also kind of make you look a little bit cooler in a sense. And people listen a little bit more when they notice that you're going out of, out of your way to communicate with them in various channels as opposed to just through one you know, email communication or even if it's just like a PowerPoint. PowerPoints are, are so flat sometimes. Yeah. So you have to be able to kind of give it a little bit of pizzazz because again, 
change management is about changing human behavior. You have to get people excited for that change. And PowerPoints don't really do that. You need like that human emotional connection to it as well. You know, and that just brought up another question I was just thinking about. We're, we're all having sort of Zoom fatigue right now. How difficult is it to manage change in this reality that we're in right now? It's a lot more difficult, especially because I'm a very, I'm extroverted. Um, and I think I, I very much like to walk to different people's desks and talk to people. So being at home and just doing it through Zoom is yeah. very limiting. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and it's definitely made me think outside of my own comfort zone around how to get people engaged as well, yeah. because it's a lot more difficult if someone is ignoring your emails and you can actually find them in person. But when you're stuck at home and they're ignoring your emails and your, and your slacks, it's like, well, how am I going to actually get this person to acknowledge me? So I've gotten a lot more um, creative about how I reach out to people as well. And what are you doing that's creative? Tell us, because I'm sure somebody in our audience is saying, please, what's the secret sauce right now? Well, part of my secret sauce is that I can be very annoying. And <laughs> one of the, I think one of the signs of a good project manager is being able to be that person as much as it sucks sometimes to be the person who's shouting the loudest and to be able to be like, hey, I'm checking in every single day, even if it means that I'm sending you 20 slacks until you answer, I'm not going to stop sending you slacks. And so okay. people usually are like, oh my gosh, I need Get her, to her away out. from me. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So that's one of the out of the box. The other thing that I like to do is I like to communicate to my team, like what the time uh, component or their, the, give them like a forecast of the week before, of the week after. Mm -hmm. So like, Hey guys, next week, um, as my extended team, we have four workshops, which are going to take up four hours of your time and then two debriefing sessions. So please um, make sure that you have at least eight hours available next week for this project. So st I started to communicate like that um, when the pandemic started, just because I wanted to people to be able to plan for their um, weeks accordingly. So on Fridays, I would send that out being like, here's, here's a forecast for next week. And I got a really good, a lot of really good responses um, to that around, oh, it's been so helpful to be able to know like exactly how much time you're gonna be requiring from me. And then I can work my schedule around that. So that's one of the things that I've, start, that I've started doing. Um, and then again, I'm, I don't send that out through email. I usually use Slack. Sometimes if a client has like a Nebula or a SharePoint site, I might post that up there as well so that people know that there's a centralized place if they're like, oh, it's Monday morning and I wanna really plan out my week. I know exactly where I can go to see how much this, this certain initiative is gonna take of me. That's wonderful. Good, some good ideas there. You know what I'd love to hear from you is a great example of a time when you have seen change management done really well because the human element was such a big part of that plan. So I had a client that was um, at that point, actually at that time, they were a small um, pharmaceutical company, probably had around 30 to 40 people at that point. And part of the change or part of the reason why we were brought in was really that they were hitting that inflection point of they started off as a small company. Everyone was wearing a lot of different hats. They didn't really have a lot of operational structure in place. 
And so what we were doing is we were coming in to get them basically ready for them to move from a small pharma company to a medium, large pharma company, getting them ready basically for the FDA. If the FDA were to come in to audit them, making sure that they had the right procedures in place so that they were meeting um, federal regulations. So right off the bat, there's a lot of resistance to that change because when you're in a small, when you're in a small company, you wear a lot of hats, that okay. flexibility is great. And a lot of people enjoy the flexibility that comes with a small startup of being able to wear a lot of hats and you're exposed to so many things. And when we come in and we start talking about you guys need organizational charts, you're going to have to follow these procedures. It's automatically people get very upset. Yeah. Now there's a lot of rigor. And to your point of what we were talking about earlier around fear of change, one of the biggest fears that we kept hearing was that we were going to slow them down. And that because we were adding this rigor to the way that they worked, they were no longer going to be able to be as flexible as possible. So they weren't, they were going to lose their ability to be innovative. Yeah. And so a lot of the work that we did up front was to be able to show them. And a lot of it was through just gathering metrics and getting data on the way that they worked operationally to be able to show them like, hey, let's take um, like protocol authoring, for example. This particular company, when they authored a protocol and your protocol is basically the, um, let's call it the really large plan of how you're gonna run your clinical trial. And it's very, very complex. It usually requires at least 10 to different, 10, 10 to 12 different people of different functional areas have to look at it and are authors of that particular plan. You also need to get that signed off by a medical safety team because you wanna make sure that patient safety is always your number one priority when you're running clinical trials. So it's very complex and it's very difficult. And a lot of times, or for this particular client, they thought that they were doing perfectly well with their protocol authoring process. They were like, we need absolutely no help. And we started going in and we're realizing that their drafting cycles for protocols, they have 20 to 25 review cycles for a single protocol. It's taking them months to get protocols made. And so what they were doing is they were writing a protocol knowing full well that they were gonna have to amend it later on. They were to prove that protocol and then right as they approved it, they would start all of their um, clinical trial startup uh, activities, which is identifying your patients, where are you gonna help hold that trial? And then they would amend their protocol at the same time. But that's extremely inefficient. That's wow. just taking up time. So when we went in and we started to show them the stats and we held these big workshops around, okay, well, what frustrates you the most when you're writing protocols? And people are talking about, I hate that it takes you know 20 review cycles to get this document done. I hate that it takes three to four months to even get the first draft and then we instantly amend it. So people oh, yeah. are mad about the fact that it, yeah. all of the work that you put up, up front is just worthless because you're still amending it. Yeah. And each time you amend your protocol, you're changing your study design. So you also have all of your teams have to adjust to that amendment. So it causes a considerable amount of churn for people and their everyday work to work. And so we start to design a new process for them and people are being like, well, I don't know, this seems too rigor. Like you guys are giving us too much rigor. And what we basically proposed was, well, right now you guys have three different study teams. Let's have study team A is going to adopt this new process that we've created. And the other two teams are gonna keep working business as it is. 
And then in six months, we're gonna come back and we're gonna check in and we're gonna see, has this reduced the number of cycle times when it comes to your protocol writing process? So we hold our workshops, we design the process with them. We, part of what we also have to do is create new standard operating procedures and all of that. And then we basically give them, we train everyone on the new process for just that study team. And then we're like, okay, we're gonna come back. This time, we, I usually say six months, but this one was about four months. We come back in four months and we take a look at some of the metrics that they've been collecting for us. And it turns out that study team A went from reviewing or having about 20 to 25 review cycles for a protocol. We managed to chop that down to five to 10. Wow. So now we're saving people a month to a month and a half. Oh time. my goodness. And so what's happening is the other two study teams are now extremely jealous about the fact that study team A is working so much faster and they don't have this extra level of churn. And so now at this point, what you have is that excitement and that's that excitement of other people wanting to adapt to change. So when we come back and we're like, okay, we're, let's start. What we had originally proposed is that we were gonna do three pilots. We were gonna roll it out really slowly. But when we came back four months later, both study teams were like, no, no, just finish rolling it out to all of us, roll it out to the rest of the team. Great. And so that was, I think one of the best experiences that I've had is just to go in and have people be like, oh my gosh, we are so excited because we've seen it work now and we are ready for this change. And once you have people who are telling you like, we're ready to change, the change is extremely easy. Yeah, that's that's a that's a home run, right? That's there. a home run. That's yeah. a home run, oh gosh. That's wonderful, thank you for sharing that. You know, finally, let's circle back to where we started in that main idea of think, talk and create and that mission of creating workplaces that are fit for humans. What is your advice with that in mind for companies who are starting a change management initiative? I think definitely keep the timeline in mind and don't try to rush the change because a lot of times, as we spoke earlier, it takes longer than you initially think. And also don't listen to people. I think it's important to really listen yeah. to people and give them time to accept the change and blend it into their goals for that year. You know, if you really want to change the stick, you have to incentivize that change as well. You have to be able to give them a reason for why they should be adopting to that particular change. So if you're implementing a new software, for example, make it part of the corporate goals that year, have that trickle down so that people are incentivized to use the new software that you've, you know, purchased and have invested in, because that helps that behavioral change component more so than just getting, I like to call it being voluntold to do something. It's never fun when you get voluntold to do something, but if it's part of your goals, if you know that you're going to get rewarded for doing or for adopting to a certain change, you see a, bit, a higher level of change. Just some terrific, terrific ideas. I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us today. And thank you for all the work you do in your real job out there to create workplaces <laughs> that are indeed fit for humans. Thank you, Lena. No, thank you so much, Karen. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you, you too. You have been listening to the Think, Talk, Create podcast, the official podcast of Strategy of Mind. To learn more about Strategy of Mind and the work they do, visit www.strategyofmind.com. David and Ryan's book, Think, Talk, 
Create, will be available on September 21st wherever books are sold. If you would like to be a guest on our show or recommend a guest, please send an email to coaches at strategyofmind.com. Thank you for listening.